Hebrews 8 this morning. So I'm going to read that passage, the whole chapter, Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he made the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it does give us life now, that it does nourish us. Give us insight, clarity, renew us in who you are, what you've done for us in Jesus who we are, who we become, who we are becoming as a result of your gracious work in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've been looking at this, this, this Hebrews, this letter. Jewish Christians are facing pressure to let their commitment to the church kind of wane. They're being tempted to fall back into first century Judaism recognize Jesus as the Savior and Messiah and once for all sacrifice for sin. And the aim of the book is to wake up these Christians to what they have in Jesus, that Jesus is greater than anything first century, first century Judaism can provide. He's after the fulfillment of everything that first century Judaism is looking forward to, all the customs, rituals, sacrifices, that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get across. And in chapter 8, the author just continues highlighting this, focusing on the fact that Jesus is this greater, the true High priest who mediates a great, a greater, better covenant, and the covenant is greater because it's established on better, better than the covenant God made with with Israel when He freed them from Egypt. And the author quotes Jeremiah thirty-one, which we the earlier service, one of the longer quotes of the Old Testament, if not the longest. 
And his point there in quoting that, that passage in Jeremiah 31 is that God is speaking here. He's describing the problems he has with the covenant that he established with Israel. He's got problems with it. It's just it's not enough. God has this bigger dream for his relationship with his people and the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel can't provide that like God wants to. And so we're going to look at that today, how the new covenant promises are greater, how the relationship that the new covenant creates between God and his people is so much and so if you're listening to this and you're like, Joel, I am not myself tempted to revert back to anything like first century Judaism. I think animals are cute and I don't like the fact that they're slaughtered and so I prefer not to sacrifice animals. And so there's no pool. I don't feel the pool. So what, is this, what does this really have to do with me? God has a relationship with you, a deep relationship with you. And he sent Jesus. He moved heaven and earth to make that happen for you. And that's the whole, really the whole point of this book is do you see what you have in Jesus? Or have you lost sight of it? Is it ringing in your heart what Jesus has done for you, the relationship, and what it costs Jesus to provide that for you? Have you begun to kind of grow cold to that? These first century Christians to what they have in Jesus and do not look anywhere else. And we need to wake up too. And so we're going to look at what we got. Do we appreciate it? Are we living into it? So three things. Jesus brings this better covenant. Remember, covenant is, it establishes this relationship. It brings two parties together. Jesus establishes this better covenant, this new covenant, a better, deeper relationship with God in three important ways. Right? It's a relationship with deeper obedience, deeper knowledge, and deeper security. So let's look at each of those, deeper obedience. The author of Hebrews writes in 8.10, and he's quoting Jeremiah 31, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Remember, God is speaking here. He's saying, one day, we're going to internalize for them, my law for them in a way that's never been done before. And he's not just talking about like memorizing or like cognitive retention of what God wants about the Old Testament. Israel's Who God is and what he's done for us. All throughout, that's supposed to be happening. And they, they could memorize things, but that probably worked out okay. It's not just about willingness either. It's kind of an instant. All throughout the Old Testament, it will express this willingness. Yes, yes, it's required of us. But if you know the story, you know inevitably they just they fall out of step with God. What God has in mind here is, is a people who walk in step, step by step. And it's deep in their bones, and it's like second nature to them. Eugene Peterson, who is the author of The Message, which is a paraphrased translation of the Bible and many other books, especially, he talks about, he, he recounts this kind of story um, as he's describing a husband and a wife can kind of internalize one another's habits and kind of experience this kind of deep unity of, of life together. He describes the way that this happened or someone kind of observed this, unbeknownst to him, happening in his marriage. He said, I was walking in the park with my wife. Just walking, and my wife's beside me. We're walking together, and we're maybe we're talking. I don't know if they were talking about something or not, but they're just walking together. And they said, This guy rides up on his bike behind us and just stops in front of us. And he says, I've been watching you for the last three minutes. I said, okay, say more. He's like, You and your wife walk perfectly step in step. Like, one, two, one, two. He's like, How long did it take you to learn how to do that? 
And Peterson's like, I didn't realize we were doing it at all. I guess it just happened over time as we live life together and kind of internalize one another's ways that we begin slowly and inevitably to walk step by step. Now, so like I read that, you know, and my wife and I, me and Allison, we like to go for walks. So I tried to do that and it doesn't just happen. I was like, you know, especially when other people are watching, I'm like, they're going to see. But my, I, I can't, you know, then it's like, Allison, why are you lagging? You need to keep up. It doesn't work. It doesn't just happen. Oh, there's this deep kind of unity that happens. You know, and we'll get more to kind of how, what, what builds that. But that's, that's kind of what this keeping, we talk about, the New Testament has this language, keeping in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with God. And Israel just couldn't do it. They would start out strong. I mean, stride for stride. But they would just veer this way. They would veer that way. The law never gets in as deep as it needs to get. They lose heart, right? The flesh would keep the law from getting in as deep as but their disordered desire. I mean, the flesh, their disordered laws. It draws them away from God. It pulls them away. It calls them to doubt, fear, or respect. The flesh was still a problem. And Jesus becomes and changes all of them. How? How does he change it? It's not just by providing salvation. Salvation was provided for Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. They were saved by faith in God's promises, just like we're saved by faith in God's promises. It's not just... that answers all of human fleshly resistance, right? Israel had plenty of proofs. As God said himself, you know, I took them by the hand like a father takes his child by the hand and I freed them from slavery in Egypt. And I, you know, he parts the waters and he conquers their enemies. He feeds them manna in the desert and water flows from the rock. And in all this, God's demonstrating his power and his love for them. But in all this too, if you know the story, the flesh is whispering, you know, is it really? Does he really love us? Does he really have our best interests at heart? Would it be better if we're in Egypt, right? And Israel had answers. They could call attention to these different proofs of God's love, but we have such a better answer in Jesus because in Jesus, God doesn't just send someone like Moses to proclaim and lead us in deliberation. God doesn't just send someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah, these prophets to challenge his people. He doesn't just send someone like David to rescue his people. Jesus is all of these and more because in Jesus, God takes on the flesh of his people. He takes on the flesh of his people. Right? He, he takes on the burdens of his people. He takes the death due his people. Israel could say, see how, see how God led us by the hand out of Egypt. We can say, see how God took our place in death. One's more powerful. One gets, just gets down deeper. Both are true, but one gets down deeper. Israel could say, see how great and powerful God is. Look at his mighty deeds. But the flesh to whispers, is it love? Is it love? We can look at Jesus and we say, see the power of God's love for us. And there is no question that he loves us because he gave his one and only son for us. And when we see that, when we truly see that, 
There's like a wound, right? There can wound us. It, God's law is written on our hearts. There is, this, there is this internal act of the Spirit, God working. But the Spirit is illumining what Jesus does and applies it to our hearts. In a sense, the Spirit brands us with the beauty and power of Jesus as he's revealed in the gospel. You know, you've probably experienced this before, that the beauty can function. We can experience beauty almost as a wound. It takes our breath away. But it's a wound that heals. In the Lord of the Rings, there's that classic passage where Sam and Frodo are trekking to Mordor and they're losing hope, and Sam catches a glimpse of a star, and this is how Tolkien describes it. He said, There, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tower, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star. Sam is smitten by the beauty of the star and is empowered to move forward, to keep going, to follow the path. If your motivation to follow God is waning, don't just focus on the negative consequences of disobeying and all that stuff. That's, there's a place for that. But if, you're, if it's really waning, if, if your flesh is beginning to speak up louder and louder, can I, can I trust him? Does my obedience really matter? Does this life really matter? You need to be smitten or re-smitten. Like Sam was with the star, you need to be re-smitten by the beauty of God's love for you, shown to us in Jesus, what he's done for you. You need to behold him and worship him and keep peering into it until it does pierce your heart, until it brands your heart with his law, with his way. You know, when you when you really see, you know, when you when you witness something great, you know, we're going to watch. This, well, some of us might watch the Super Bowl next week, right? We're going to see, likely see some amazing. Somebody's nodding. We're going to see some amazing physical feats, right? And if you're like ten or under, or fifteen or under, or maybe. 40 or 60 or under, I don't know. You're going to watch that, and you're going to go outside and pretend like you're there. You're them, right? Like you have the same skill you're going to do. You may train harder if you're a kid. You know, I'm going to be better. It's invigorating. It's inspiring because of the beauty and the power of what we see. In a sense, when we see Jesus like that, the beauty and the power of his love for us and what he's done for us, it is, how can we not obey him? How can we not walk with him? How can we not follow him? wherever he goes. His law is written on our heart and it results in this deeper relationship characterized by us working in step. And obedience now, it's not a duty, not just for fear of punishment or shame. It's because we've been loved and how can we not love him back? How can we not? It's the only thing that makes sense, the only reasonable response, right? We can't look at all he's done for us and say, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if I have it. Maybe, maybe it doesn't really matter now. You know, it's like, it's like when, you know, if you're married, you know, you're the, the groom and the bride are standing in front of each other and they're expressing their undying love, their vow of unconditional love. And if the groom is like, well, if what you're saying is true, then I can kind of do whatever I want, right? And you're still going to love me till death do us part, right? Like, I'm good. I don't have to worry about it. You'd be like, no, man, you don't get it. You don't get what's on offer to you. Get your stuff together. Figure this out. This is not right. And Jesus is like, I have done all for you given all for you, how can we not return his love by giving all for him, by following him? Jesus makes possible a deeper obedience, a deeper worship, a deeper awe, a full and final answer to all the resistance in us. Because we see in Jesus a beautiful picture of God's power, but it's working in love for us. We don't just fear him, we behold him. In all of him. Jesus also brings a deeper knowledge. 
verse uh, chapter 8, verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, it says. Now, this isn't saying there won't be any need for teaching. Otherwise, I wouldn't be up here, and the author of Hebrews wouldn't be writing this to them. Yeah. But in Israel, there was this pattern. In the story of Israel, you'll see it if you read the Old Testament, there was this pattern of most of the people turning away from God. And so a small remnant would remain faithful, and they'd be saying, Brothers, sisters, come back. Know the Lord. This is not the way. And, the ver and, and this prophecy, this promise is saying there's a day when that dynamic will change, that no longer will the small remnant confront, confront the unfaithful majority, but knowledge of God will spread among all the people. And no longer will the select few, you know, the greats, right? The greatest, the prophets, the kings, the priests, no longer only will they know God, experience God, but all will experience God like prophets, priests, and kings. Let me just throw in a little caveat here. Because if you come from certain backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, um, you may have heard this taught as an implication of this verse, is that the church should only recognize as members those individuals who demonstrate their knowledge of God by a credible profession of faith. Right? And so therefore we shouldn't baptize infants because they can't give this credible profession. And I don't have time, and I, it's not, not the place to engage that completely, that position. But I just want to point out that Jeremiah is focusing on the character of the existing covenant community, which included children. And he's saying it's going to change. But the knowledge of God is going to grow deeper and more widespread to those within the covenant community. More widespread than ever had before. He's not rearranging who's in and who's out. He's saying the experience of those who are in, including children, is going to dramatically change that all from the least to the greatest right, will experience God as only a select few have done before Jesus. And when you watch Jesus and his ministry on earth, he comes to the least and he joins hands with them. And in a patriarchal, patriarchal society, children were part of the least. They had, they, they had not, until they start providing something tangible, positive to society, they, they've really done nothing. And so when the parents start bringing the kids, the disciples are like, put these guys away, that Jesus doesn't have time. And Jesus says, for such belong, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Kingdom language, covenantal language. For the children, for the least, that even the least will know God. Will know God in a profound way. So let's now shift gears and just focus on the deeper knowledge of God that Jesus brings, a deeper knowledge that Israel could have never known, right, to know something. Some of you, if I ask you, what do you know, you'll be like, well, I know this fact, and 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 I know this fact. And others of you, what do you know, they'll kind of be like, what do you mean? And then you'll be like, well, I know my, I know who I am, I know where I come from, I I know that life is hard, and you'll talk about your experience. And both of those are valid kind of ways of, are valid forms of knowledge, objective knowledge, subjective knowledge, right? There are different forms of knowledge. Charles Dickens, in his novel, Hard Times, there's this harsh schoolmaster, Mr. Gradgrind, and he addresses Sissy Jupe, who is girl number 20 in the class, right? Gradgrind finds out that she grew up in a circus and that her father trains horses. And he demands that she give the definition of a horse. And so she, he says, girl number 20, define a horse. She's grown up with horses her whole life. And she opens her mouth and she, she has nothing. 
silent. It's awkward, and she's embarrassed. And then he, his finger lands on a kid named Bitzer. Bitzer, your definition of a horse. Bitzer, without missing a beat. Quadruped, graminivorous, 40 teeth, namely 24 grinders, 4 eye teeth, and 12 incisive. Sheds coat in the spring in marshy countries. Sheds hoofs too, hoofs hard, but requiring to be shot with iron. Age known by marks and mouth. And he says, number 20, now you know what a horse is. All right. But Sissy Juke, she knows what a horse is too, doesn't she? She can't recite it, but she knows in her body and her experience what a horse is like, what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like to ride one, to, to stroke the hair. She knows what a horse is. She just can't say objective knowledge, objective knowledge, and God in Jesus gives us all of it. You know, we tend to privilege one or the other because of our personality or whatever. God gives us it all in Jesus. Full knowledge in a way that Israel never could have dreamed. Right? It's not that Israel didn't know things. Of course they knew things. God revealed his name to Moses and to Israel. And in the law, God reveals his character to Israel, what he likes and he dislikes. And all that data is given to Israel. And Israel witnesses subjectively. They witness God descending in a cloud on Mount Sinai, right? They see the glory of God filling the temple. They feel in their bodies and they see it with their eyes, the power of God. But Jesus brings, he mediates a deeper, deeper knowledge of God because he is the final prophet of God who not only proclaims God to us, reveals God to us, but is God with us. Watching Jesus live in the Gospels, you begin to truly see what God is just like, what he's like. You listen to the, you read the Sermon on the Mount and you start to hear the heart of God and what God, his will is for, for our hearts. But it's not just objective facts that God re reveals in Jesus. In Jesus, you see it in the Gospels that people begin to experience God in a way that Israel never could have. They can touch him. They can look into his eyes and feel felt by him. They can finally know in a way that Israel never could what it's like to be known by God. Israel's history, certain people had profound individual experiences of God. The prophets, the kings, the priests, you know, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Incredible experiences with God. Most people didn't have that. A few did. Jesus changes all that. He is God and he goes to sinners and lepers and he goes to the lame and he goes to the rich and the poor, right? And they get to experience Jesus like kind of like Moses does on the mountain when he sees God face to face. They're talking face to face with God now. And in a meaningful sense, we can sit down with Jesus in the same way. See, what's so interesting about the Gospels, when you read them with kind of an eye for it, is that they don't just record God's law. Like, what he, do this, don't do this. They don't just record proper doctrine. They really do. They don't just kind of reveal, describe God's heart. They show it. You know, like a good author, like if you ask a good author, good authors, authors will say, you can't just tell them. You've got to show them. Right? Don't just say, Anne was, there's Anne here. Don't just say, whatever. She was angry. But you show the anger in the words that she says. And what she does, you show it. The Gospels don't just tell us Jesus was like this. And then he was, we see it. We experience it. We witness it. The Gospels reveal the inner world, the inner life of Jesus. How he feels. We see his compassion. We see him weep over his friends. We see him get moved and angry in the face of death. He's ticked. He's compelled by something. And we see all that, right? We see him praying to his father. We're given glimpses into the relationship that he has 
with his father. Right? We see him in the garden, stressed because of what the death that's to come. We see his compassion on the thief that hangs next to him on the cross. We see this, we, we don't just, we hear, we feel the cry of desperation he makes as he gives his spirit up to the father. We see his courage before Pilate, right? We see his need for friends. Come on, guys, pray with me. Don't leave me alone. We see Jesus, his personality. We know him. You know, if you're sitting and you're working with somebody in, in an office and like suddenly they start narrating all their feelings, like really showing you everything, you know, like by the end of that day, you're going to be exhausted and ticked off. But you're also going to be like, well, I know, I know the guy or the gal now. I feel like I know. that's kind of what we have in Jesus without being ticked off about it, because we can close it and come back to it. And that's nice. But we know him. We get to know him. Really know him. And a way that Israel never could, impossible. It is impossible. We can know him. Israel knew God, and it was sufficient knowledge to save them. But God doesn't just want converted people. We have that with Israel. He doesn't just want like people who obey. He wants people who know him. He knows. He wants his people to experience being known. And so ask yourself, are you growing deeply in your knowledge of God? Are you taking advantage of what you have? That Israel, some of the people have dreamed of it, but they never have it like we have it. Are you taking advantage of the blessing you've been given? Are you seeking to know him? Also, are you seeking to be known by him? For me, one of the most powerful ways I can experience being known by God is just to tell him what's going on. Like, not just asking for stuff. Be like, I'm really stressed right now. I don't have a clue why. I'm I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I'm mad. And I can't get, I don't understand what's driving me. He doesn't ever, so far, like, speak some answer to me. Well, this is why. But I know he hears me. Jesus shows me that. I know he hears me. I know he cares. And that's enough for me. It's happening. He cares. He's listening. He's with me, sustaining me. Do you seek to experience being known by him? And that happens not just privately, individually, but maybe more so even in community. This, we are God's image. We convey the love of God to one another. This is one of the primary ways we will experience knowing God and being known by him is being known and loved by one another. It's hard to do. It seems like in our culture, it's getting harder and harder. It's more and more risky, as Derek was saying earlier, to, to, to truly be known, to truly tell the, to tell people the truth about ourselves and what's happening around us, within us. To hear that truth from others, it makes us sort of awkward and we're unsure. But it's how we're known. And God's given us to one another so that we can experience being known, not just by one another, but by him. So are we living into that? Are we giving thanks for the opportunity for the new thing we have in Jesus? And are we living into a deeper knowledge? Kids, kids, are you praying? Are you relating to God as a real person? Are you confessing your sins? I know. Is God becoming your God, not just your parents' God? 
parents, are we not just teaching our kids facts about God, but sharing with our kids how we experience the life of God, how he helps us endure our fears and be patient with each other and love one another, how he empowers us. Are we helping our kids see the way that God is a real person? Point three, the final one. Jesus brings a deeper obedience, a deeper knowledge, but also a deeper security. A deeper security than Israel could have ever known. God says in 8.12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I should just stop there. Probably wouldn't mind that, but I have more to say. I mean, I just, you know, how does that hit you? I will remember your sins no more. Really? Yeah, right. All right, like, come on. We all know what it's like to be forgiven by people. And we all know usually it takes more than once. Usually it's brought up, held in the back pocket, brought up somewhere. God says, I will remember your sins no more. It's this promise of forgiveness. That's not new. God's been forgiving, ensuring, assuring of forgiveness ever since the very first sin. He forgave sins under the sacrificial system, but it's different now. He's saying it's different now because this isn't just kind of forgiveness, but restoration. Sin not just passed over, but blotted out. And Trevor mentioned last week the sacrificial system. It can't provide that complete final substitute for sin. It wasn't intended to. Right? Every year you're making more sacrifices. Regularly making more offerings because the blood of animals can't secure a full and final offering for sin full and final substitution, a full and final restoration, right? It's like breaking a window in your house and your father or your parent comes to you and they're like, all right, well, here's what we'll do. I'll provide you with all the materials, the plastic, the tape and all that. You just make sure it's taped over so you don't get any rain. It's okay. Like, we're going to be fine. And if the plastic wears out, you just replace it, put more in. I'll keep providing all the plastic you need. Don't worry about that. And, and I'll help you with it. That's no problem. But, you know, this is how we're going to take care of this problem. Right? And so that's all right. Like that works. That's good. And that's kind of what Israel had. But but then suddenly one day, you know, if you walk in and like it's a brand new window. Like, Whoa, what happened? And then father's like, oh, I just figured it was, you know, we're, we'll replace it. It's 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 finished now. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to walk by it and remember it. I'm not gonna walk by it. It's it's done. It's done. And that's different. That's better. That's much better. And that's what Jesus offers us, right? That's what he offers us. God sends Jesus so that he can have that kind of relationship, that kind of security with you. Jesus eliminates the debt we owe. He eliminates the threat of God's wrath. But not only that, his righteous life has been credited to us as if we lived it. And that means there's, there really is there's no rational basis for any kind of deep relational anxiety with him anymore. There's every, we have every grounds for real security with God. He wants that for us. He wants us to feel secure. With him. That's why he sends Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we don't still have sin, that we don't still commit sins. We do. And those sins disrupt our experience of God's love. Of course they do. You can't experience God's love fully if you're looking away from him to other things for the love that they can offer. Like you're not going to, it's going to disrupt it. But that doesn't mean that when you screw up, God is shaking his finger and saying, now, now what are we going to do about this? Who's going to pay for this? Who's going to fix this, me or you? Well, we grew up here in that, and we tend to project that on God. That's not how he works. 
if you come to God, he's like, oh, the sin, yeah, that, that's taken care of. Now let's just talk about, let's talk about what's going on in you. Remember, I love you, I'm for you, let's talk about the way of love. That's how he pulls it. Much closer to Not dismissive. It's like, it's a non-issue now. It's been taken care of. It's been taken care of. He remembers your sins no more. And if you hear that and you think, well, then, you know, oh, then technically I'm free to go do whatever I want, right? Like you're hearing kind of the radical side of the gospel, but you're still not hearing it. You're still not seeing what you've got. It, if you really know what he's given you, you're not going to be looking for what you can get away with. You're like, how, how can I please you? How can I honor what you've given me? I just, I'm so grateful, right? And if you're hearing that and you're somebody else and you're thinking, well, it probably won't hurt to just try to add a little bit, like enhance it. Like, ah, you know, the window's been replaced, but it could use a good cleaning. So I'll just, every once in a while, stop by and clean it. Yeah, no harm, no harm. Be careful, right? If we try to enhance the deep security that Jesus achieves for us with his perfect it will only reduce it. Right? Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, he has this wonderful illustration uh, uh, that we can't, he says, we can't add to what Jesus has done for you without taking away from it. Um, and he gives this example. There, you know, I think this is right. This is from memory, so I might be butchering it, but the, it'll get the point across. But there's this woodworker, right? a master woodworker, and he's been commissioned by somebody to build this beautiful cabinet. Right? And he labors intensively over the board. Labors, pours it on. And he's, he's, he's attending to every detail, every curve, every indentation, right? And he's, he's finally finished. He has it exactly the way he wants it. And he invites the guy who commissions him, the client, to come in and look at this finished piece of furniture, this finished masterpiece, and it's beautiful, right? But the client from where he's standing, or she, they're like, well, there's a, it looks like there's just a slight little rough patch right there. And so the... He, they, they take a little piece of like fine grit sandpaper. It's not going to do anything but just smooth it out. He says, I'm going to just take this and smooth it out. Just, just add that little touch. And the woodworker says, no, 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 don't touch it. It's exactly the way it's meant to be. You can't add to it without taking away from it. Right? There's an impulse in us to add to the security that Jesus has already given to us, that we already have with God, by living a good life. And now we're not just finding our rest in what God has done for us, but we're finding our rest in our own performance. And it feels okay, and it works for a little while, but inevitably it just erodes your security. It will either lead to an inflated, distorted relationship with God where you're kind of like, well, yeah, God loves me because I'm doing pretty darn well and actually better than a lot of people around me. It'll puff you up. Or it will just it will just erode. You'll start to be like, I'm stressed out. I feel pressure now. I don't really know why, and I'm comparing myself to other people, and the people who are really have it together are kind of getting on my nerves, and now I'm with God. I can't. I'm, I'm feeling more anxious, and it's because you are more anxious because the grounds for your security is diminishing. Right? Like you know, linen cloth that's perfectly clean and whole. You don't have to keep washing it over and over and over and over again, or you it it falls apart. It grows thin. We are clean. We are whole in Jesus. We can't add to that work without taking away from it. We can't add to it without taking away. God wants a deep relationship. 
teaching. That's why Jesus came. One where you're free to be who he's called you to be, which is the only way to be, the only way to a deeper obedience. One where you are known by him, where you know him deep in knowledge, and one where your heart is at rest with him. You never fear his wrath, his rejection, his lack of disfavor. So Jesus could have that kind of security. Israel could be saved, but they couldn't experience God like we can because of what Jesus has done. So let's give thanks for what he's given us. Let's cling to him as our mediator, the source of all these blessings, the grounds for our, the ground for our security. And let's, let's remember that he's the one who makes that relationship possible. As we come to the table in a minute, a question for you is, do you want that kind of relationship? The kind of relationship that God wants with you, do you want? Do you want the freedom to follow him wherever he may go, to walk in step with him? Do you want that kind of power and do you want to be known by him? Do you want to know him? Do you want him to be the center of your life? Do you want to find rest in his presence? To set aside all your good works and all the stuff that might prove yourself to God and, and rely solely on what Jesus has done. Is that the kind of relationship you're looking for? That's the only one that God offers you. That's the only one that will work. So if you're coming kind of clinging to your own stuff and saying, well, I can, this will help. This will help God love me a little bit more or make it a little bit easier for him to forgive. That's not, you're missing it. Jesus offers you his blood and his body here, his life, his power, so that you can be in relationship. So if you've been baptized into the community of God, you've been brought into relationship with God through baptism, and you're clinging to that and to Jesus as the hope your soul. Not perfectly, but if that's what you want, then this is where you belong. God wants you. All right. So let's, uh, let's pray.